0: It's okay. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, you must be masochists, all of you. Uh, in the last of this painful series, there are so many people still here. Um, clearly, you're gluttons for punishment. Um, my talk tonight uh, is actually on the the very title of our of our session: the roadmap to peace, the war, and its implications for Palestinians and Israelis. And uh, I, I warn you in advance, it's a gloomy – I come to gloomy conclusions. I usually do tend to come to gloomy conclusions when I talk about these subjects. But there we are. You have to be an utopian, then you're not. I'm not a utopian. I'm a realist. Um, there you have it. The, Iraq, the Iraqi war, in my view, uh, had very little impact on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, all of the pre-war predictions notwithstanding. There turned out to be no missiles fired at Israel. Uh, There turned out to be no weapons of mass destruction fired at Israel or fired at anyone else. Uh, There may not even have been weapons of mass, mass destruction. It's not yet clear whether anything will be found. Clearly, if there's anything, there may be programs or precursors, but none of the nightmare scenarios were borne out. I personally doubt that the destruction of the Iraqi regime, which in itself is a good thing, will have very much impact on this conflict. Um, Some people have argued, in fact it was one of the main arguments for the war in some quarters, that Iraq's uh, financing of what was described as terrorism via payments to families of Palestinians killed uh, by the Israeli occupation, including the families of suicide bombers, um, would, ending this, would make a major contribution to ending the conflict. I don't think it had anything to do with the conflict, and I don't think ending it will have anything, any effect on the conflict. Um, I think that, in fact, such an argument betrays an old colonialist ideology, the idea that resistance uh, to occupation, according to this colonialist worldview, is a function of outside agitators or takes place because of money. Um, uh, According to this worldview, such resistance doesn't take place because of deeply felt grievances. I think the elimination of any Iraqi payments to Palestinian families is not going to have any impact whatsoever on what happens in the occupied territories. Finally, the war also did not lead lead to some of the other foolish predictions being borne out. Um, There was no ethnic cleansing of Palestinians by Israel under cover of a war. There were no. Uh, huge terrorist attacks inside Israel by Palestinians during the war. In fact, uh, uh, I would argue the war had very little impact on uh, uh, the Palestinian Israeli conflict. And I'm going to argue further uh, that that will continue to be the case. I don't think either that the change in the regional balance of power with an American victory in Iraq, with the crushing of uh, uh, one Arab regime, and I, I would suggest the elimination for a very long period of Iraq uh, as a functioning state, perhaps for several years, perhaps for many, many years. Um, and the other elements that have emerged in terms of regional strategy from this war, in terms of both Syria and Iran being surrounded on almost every side by unfriendly powers, in most cases by American forces or by countries allied to the United States. I don't think that any of these changes, American victory, destruction of the Iraqi state and regime, um, the surrounding, in effect, of Iran and Syria by America and its allies, I do not think that they're going to lead to much change in the Arab-Israeli conflict. They'll have a big impact on Syria. They'll have a big impact on Iran, obviously. They'll have a big regional impact. But I do not think that as far as the Arab-Israeli conflict is concerned, and in particular the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is concerned, they will have much of an impact. And that for two reasons. The first is that none of the three leaderships that are most important to this conflict, the American leadership, the Israeli leadership, and the Palestinian leadership, have really changed as a result of this war. Neither have the people really changed nor have their behaviors changed. And secondly. I would argue that regional influence on this conflict was already quite minimal. The Arab states had been more or less marginalized. The United States has systematically ignored them and will continue to do so. Uh, Israel uh, dominates this region strategically and did so even before Iraq was destroyed. So I don't actually think that the Gulf War's strategic impact, which is going to be great in a variety of other spheres, is going to be very significant as far as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is concerned. So what about this road map they talk about? Well, um, I call it "Road Kill" myself." Um, and I could stop right there and you know leave you with that, but I won't. Um, this was a plan, supposedly composed by a quartet. Um, it was not. It was essentially composed in Washington by Americans. It represented a compromise between the two main wings of the Bush administration, and it was a unsatisfactory compromise at that. It does not even represent the views of the entire Bush administration, the most powerful wing of that administration. Some people would argue that this is an administration with one wing, a right wing. Um, The wing, which is represented by Donald Rumsfeld, any of you who get the uh, New Yorker will see the lead cartoon in this week's issue, Uh, shows the Pentagon a little sign in front of it. Department of Defense and much, much else. <laughs> Rumsfeld is the foreign secretary of this government. Rumsfeld is everything in this government. He certainly uh, has taken over the function of chief of intelligence. He's certainly taken over many other functions. And he has described uh, the uh, situation in the occupied territories as one of so-called occupation. So. While the United States considered Israel to be an occupation, belligerent occupier, um, the Department of Defense and much, much else does not. Um, Rumsfeld has said that the settlements are not a problem, so, whereas the official position of the Bush administration and every administration since 1967 has been that the settlements are illegal and an obstacle to peace. Um, the Secretary of State said so just yesterday. Um, as far as the Department of Defense and much, much else is concerned, such settlements are not a problem. I actually heard him say this on C-SPAN, and I was quite astonished, and nobody contradicted him within the administration. So this is the second reason why this Quartet roadmap is not going to go anywhere. First, it wasn't composed by the Quartet, it was composed by the United States. And secondly, the American administration, the Bush administration, is not even united on this roadmap. Thirdly, neither the Palestinians nor the Israelis, in my view, are politically likely to carry out the most important requirements of this roadmap, which is to say, removing settlements and halting violence. And I'll explain why that is the case. I won't talk very much about the Israeli side. I'll perhaps leave that to Professor Garnier if he chooses to address it. But on the Palestinian side, it's very, very simple. Violence on the Palestinian side is driven by popular resentment at the constant inexorable expansion of settlement and of the apparatus of occupation over the past 12 years. There has actually been an unceasing expansion of the occupation during the period beginning with the Madrid peace negotiations and up to today, 12 years. Um, The settler population has increased from about 200,000 to well over 400,000. A figure in the Israeli papers today says that including the population of occupied Arab East Jerusalem, the settler population is reaching 500,000. So the population has more than doubled settler population of the occupied territories um, in the past 12 years. This is during a period, mind you, of negotiation, uh, most of it. Only the last two years was there open conflict. Um, The situation in the occupied territories has gone from one where there was almost complete freedom of movement within the territories, that is to say within the Gaza Strip and within the West Bank, and restrictions on movement outside to Jordan or outside to Egypt, and restrictions on movement into Israel, um, but free movement into Jerusalem In 1990 or 91, to a gradual uh, 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 and partial uh, uh, gradual restrictions on movement, to a situation where you have now the virtually complete imprisonment of the population in about 15 little enclaves. Some cases, uh, in more than 15. That is to say, basically nobody can go anywhere. You can't go from village A to village B unless you walk. You can't go from town A to town B. Um, No vehicles can move. Uh, You can walk. Sometimes it's dangerous, but basically there's no movement, no communication, uh, no economic activity, no education. And this has not just been a function of the last two years. This has been a result of an inexorable series of restrictions on movement going back over a decade. Um, Finally, the Palestinian economy has basically collapsed. Um, It was never really thriving, but it was actually growing in the uh, uh, mid-1990s. It has shrunk by about 50% a year for the last two and a half years. Um, And uh, GDP per capita has gone to about a quarter of what it was about eight or nine years ago. Um, According to most polls, as with most Israelis, most Palestinians still want a two-state solution. The astonishing thing is that this violence doesn't really represent the wishes in many ways of a Palestinian majority, but they simply are overwhelmed by the process that they see all around them of the c- continuous expansion of settlement and the continuous continuous restriction of the Palestinians to smaller and smaller areas. Um, unless there is a halt to the advance of the settlement expansion, the constant expansion of settlements, unless there is a halt to the constant restrictions of movement, unless there is a halt to the expansion of the control and entrenchment of the occupation. A reversal, in other words, of this entire process, I don't think there's any chance whatsoever of violence stopping. It will not happen. Um, resistance to occupation and settlement will continue, and terror against Israeli civilians will also continue. So what happens if this roadmap is not implemented? And as I said, I'm not going to go into why I don't think uh, there will be any response on the Israeli side. Uh, what will happen when this roadmap is not implemented? What, what happens then? I've already suggested it's not going to be implemented, and I would predict that the three non-American members of the quartet, the EU, Russia, and the United Nations, will be as ineffectual in pressuring the United States to do something about this as they were in pressuring the United States not to do anything over Iraq. In other words, they will have no impact whatsoever. Um, I predict that there will be little or no American pressure on Israel to halt the expansion of settlements or to lift the sieges, which have basically cooped the Palestinians up in their towns and villages. Um, And the reason for this is very simple. I believe that at at its heart, the leading figures in the Bush administration, almost all of them, share the view of the Sharon government and of the Israeli Defense Forces that there is one root to this problem. There is one core issue in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and this core issue is Palestinian violence. The administration says this with a passion, with an intensity, and at all levels, such that I actually believe that they believe it. I don't think that this is just something that they're saying because they think people want to hear it. I think that many people, most people in this administration, really believe that the root cause of this problem is that the Palestinians are bad. What they're doing is bad. What they're doing is evil, that the the abnormality, the anomaly in this situation is Palestinian violence. That if it weren't for Palestinian violence, there would somehow be a reversion to a situation of normality. In other words, they basically don't see what any jerk on any road in the West Bank sees, that the problem is settlement and occupation, Um, and that that's the root cause of the problem. Or at the very least, that there are two root causes of the problem. occupation and settlement are in some integral way related to violence, and violence is in some integral way related to settlement, and that occupation and settlement in and of themselves are violence. You can't have settlement without violence. You can't have occupation without violence. Um, Since there is going to be no halt to violence, in my view, because there will be no rollback of occupation and settlement, the Bush administration in the end will blame the Palestinians, as it's done every time it's intervened since it's come into office. Palestinian violence is all they see. They don't see that there even is Israeli violence. I've never heard a presidential spokesman nor Ari Fleischer nor anybody else condemn Israeli violence. The, word Israel, the words Israeli and violence are never, never at the same time in the mouth of an administration spokesman. There's Palestinian violence and there's Israel, Israel has the legitimate right of self-defense. Israel responds. Israel retaliates. Israel acts. Israel does. But Israel is never. the word Israel and the word violence are never in their mouths at the same time. Um, somehow they've managed to ignore the fact that over three times as many uh, Palestinians have been killed, most of them innocent civilians, as Israelis, most of them innocent civilians, since the Intifada began in September 2000. That has somehow not had any impact on the Bush administration. What this means on the ground will be the further hijacking of politics on both sides by the extremes. On the Israeli side, by the military, which has arrogated to itself more and more responsibility for making decisions, by the the, the government that that Prime Minister Sharon recently formed after the elections. He has a strong majority, uh, and he will govern with it. And by the settlers. On the other side, by Hamas, by Islamic Jihad, and by the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, as well as the PFLP, who are the main armed factions that are leading the violence, carrying out attacks not just on Israeli soldiers, not just on Israeli settlers, but all of them carrying out attacks on Israeli civilians inside Israel. Um, Neither of these two extremes, the Israeli army and the settlers and the government on the one side, the armed Palestinian factions on the other side, have any interest in what the polls show us large majorities on both the Palestinian and Israeli sides favor which is to say some kind of negotiated compromise peace. The extraordinary thing is if you ask them, the Palestinians say things which seem to be at odds with what the armed groups are doing. If you ask them, the Israelis seem to be at odds with the government that they've just elected. But uh, what is obviously the case is that there is no political leadership on the Palestinian side to represent this majority or on the Israeli side to represent this potential majority. Um, Clearly, the Israeli military and the settlers are working towards an an absolute Israeli military victory over the Palestinians, something which I agree with Professor Gourney is uh, is unlikely, Um, they clearly want Israel to keep most of the West Bank. Uh, They clearly want uh, most of the settlements to stay. Um, They clearly want the Palestinians to be subjugated in whatever arrangement transpires. Uh, Clearly, the Palestinian armed groups believe that Israel understands only force. They believe that there's no option but to resist Israel. Some of them seem to believe Israel can be forced to negotiate and that uh, uh, that will lead to a two-state solution. Others, in particular Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and the PFLP, uh, do not believe in a, a negotiation, or if so, only as a way station. They intend to eliminate Israel, and they believe that Israel can be defeated militarily. In the end, The third Gulf War changed far less regarding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict than did the first two Gulf Wars. The first Gulf War between Iran and Iraq um, had a very profound impact on the whole region, including the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. The United States and its Arab allies egged Iraq on to attack Iran, and in so doing, they wore down Iran's revolutionary potential immediately after the Iranian Revolution, its potential for spreading the Islamic Revolution, its uh, power as a beacon for uh, all kinds of radical, uh, revolutionary, destabilizing change in the Middle East. Um, They also wore down Iraq and weakened it as well. And in so doing, the United States, in a sense, uh, served two purposes at one time, killing two birds with one stone. This, in turn, made Israel stronger. Uh, Both Iran and Iraq were formidable powers in the late 70s 70s and the early 80s. They were much, much weaker, both of them, at the end of the 1980s. In the Second Gulf War, following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the United States established its unique hegemony in the region. After the end of the Cold War, the disappearance of the Soviet Union established a major base presence in the heart uh, of of the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf region. And as a result of this, and as a result of the decline of the Soviet Union, Israel also, I think, emerged strategically much stronger. Um, as a result, a, a peace process actually began of, of all of these, all of these, all of these uh, factors. In the third Gulf War, something very different happened. I don't really think the third Gulf War had had, in the first instance, to do with the Middle East. In the first, in the first instance, the, this Gulf War, the war against Iraq that's just ended, was intended to affect a far larger audience than the Middle East. Obviously, it was intended to affect the Middle East. But it was really meant for a bigger stage. It was meant to intimidate Europe. It was meant to intimidate Russia, China, and smaller powers the world over. Um, It obviously also was meant to intimidate Middle Eastern states. But that was not its primary uh, audience, as 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 far as I can tell. Uh, And I think that it had considerably less impact on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict than either of the two major Gulf Wars that preceded it, the Iran-Iraq War or the American War after the invasion of Kuwait. Where does that leave us? It leaves us with the Palestinians and the Israelis condemned to a future with one another, without much help coming from the outside. Um, For the foreseeable future, there is very little uh, that is any different that they can expect from the outside, besides the continued unlimited backing that the United States will give to some of the more foolish tendencies in Israeli politics. Uh, In the future, that could conceivably change. There are several factors that lead me to think that it might change. One of them is the fact that Europe has a vital interest in this conflict being resolved. A increasing proportion of the population of the largest countries in Europe has deep found ties to the Islamic world. There are millions of Muslims in France. There are millions of Muslims in Britain. There are millions of Muslims in Germany. There are growing Muslim populations in Spain and Italy. They will ignore, they can ignore at their peril, the continuation of this conflict. It affects them. The last thing they want is the importation of the Arab-Israeli conflict into their domestic politics, and it's already begun. terrorists born and bred in Britain carried out an attack in Tel Aviv 2 weeks ago. These are Britons. These are people who have nothing to do with Palestine. They're Pakistani origin or Bangladeshi origin or Indian. They're 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 Britons. Their first and only language was English. They grew up in Bradford and London. This is an example of a trend which terrifies Europeans. Europe has a choice. It can allow the United States to run this conflict, to manage this conflict in the backhanded way that it has done for the past several decades. Because America doesn't really care. This conflict does not threaten vital American interests. And so it can continue or not continue. Um, Some presidents have tried to solve it. Some have not. But basically, it's not perceived as a vital issue for most American presidents on most days. Europe does not have that luxury. So sooner or later, Europe may or may not perceive that it has to act, if need be unilaterally, to do something to end this conflict, ideally to persuade the United States of this, ideally to do something with the United States. This, in some small measure, is what the quartet represents, but it is a feeble, feeble uh, thing. The second power that might come to feel the same way is Russia. Russia has some of the similar concerns. There's a huge population within Russia of people who are Muslim and who are concerned about what happens in this region. And uh, it is clear from its behavior over Iraq, as it was clear from Europe's behavior over Iraq, that there are grave misgivings over the course of American policy there. It may be that over the Arab-Israeli conflict, Russia, too, will start to develop a policy of its own, which says, we really want to solve this conflict, and we're not going to let you do it by yourselves. Finally, there are other powers, smaller powers. China, which is not a small power at all, but which has a limited impact on this. India many other countries which may come to see the continued instability in this region abutting on uh, the two countries that have the largest oil reserves in the world, Saudi Arabia and Iraq, is actually a bad thing for them. Much more energy that is going to be imported in the 21st century by India and China is going to come from the Middle East. And, and from the Gulf region, uh, then we'll come to the United States and Europe. The United States and Europe are going to get most of their energy either from North Africa or from the Caribbean or from the United States or from Russia. But East Asia is going to get, and, and South Asia are going to get most of their energy from the Gulf. So they actually have an interest, maybe not in the 20, 2020 or 2030, but perhaps in 2040, 2050, in solving this conflict. Um, finally, there may or may not be a response to whatever form of hegemony the United States establishes in this region. We're going to see it work out in Iraq. What kind of future does the United States propose for this country that it now controls utterly? The United States is the occupying power. Whatever it does in Iraq will will determine a huge number of things. And how the Iraqis and other people in the Arab world respond to that is going to have an enormous impact on the 21st century. That, in turn, may influence um, what happens in Iraq. in the Palestinian-Israeli case. Um, I've said that there's very little regional impact on this conflict. That's the case now, and it's been the case for the last 10 or 15 years. But if you go back and look at the late 70s after the Iranian Revolution, you'll see an enormous impact on 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 this conflict uh, by the Iranian Revolution. Hezbollah was very much influenced by the Iranian Revolution, and Hezbollah basically drove Israel out of Lebanon. Uh, So there there have been cases in the past where regional upheavals, such as might or might not happen in Iraq, could have a spillover effect on this conflict. Um, Finally, who knows? There's always the possibility of regime change in Washington, DC. I mean, as of this moment in time, we are still a republic. As of this moment in time, the Florida results notwithstanding, there is an electoral system in this country which should deliver to a majority at least in each state, the electoral votes of that state, and to a majority of electoral votes, a president. So conceivably, if the majority of people in a majority of states believe that the course that this administration has uh, undertaken anywhere in the world or domestically is not a good one, we could change our government. And that might or might not have an impact on this conflict. Um, I still think that uh, it'll come down to the things that Professor Gourney talked about. It'll come down to whether the Palestinians and Israelis can agree on things like refugees, Jerusalem, borders, settlements, water, sovereignty. Uh, Those are actually not insuperable issues. Leaving aside the specifics, um, there were several cases where uh, the two sides came very close. Daba was the last in uh, January of 2001 to agreeing on most of those issues. I don't think the politics of the, of the, of the, of the two countries, two peoples most, most involved, the Palestinians and the Israelis, and I don't think the regional or the, or the international constellation favor a settlement right now. But I don't, in fact, think a settlement is impossible. Thank you very much.